Welcome to the Global Franchise Podcast, bringing you conversations with the leaders of franchising's most exciting brands. I'm Kieran McLoon, editor for Global Franchise Magazine. I remember the first six months in Donner House was really, really tough. We just couldn't get any momentum because we didn't have any marketing budget. We opened the the business with the last um, pennies in our bank and it was um, a real struggle. I was in the kitchen, Laura was front of house and we worked hard to make sure that that business was um, gonna survive. And after about six months, I remember seeing the reviews coming through and I think we had about 200 reviews and the majority of them were five star and had very few complaints and you know, just overall trying to provide a good service to the customers. And I think we started recognizing that. It's always exciting to speak with the founder of a homegrown brand that's just on the cusp of international success. Today, we're joined on the podcast by Sanj Sanghera, co-founder and MD of the Donna Shack and Donna House franchise brands. Donna Shack was launched in Leeds in the UK back in 2019 and has since steadily grown with new openings in both Manchester and Leicester. Sanj has also spoken about putting plans in place to develop in the States too, with New York and Florida being eyed as key initial markets. But how do you go from launching a brand and three pandemic-stricken years later, look at taking it overseas? And what does it take to develop an idea from an initial seed to a portfolio of successful restaurant locations? Join us as we speak with Sanj about these questions and many more. My story into the restaurant trade actually started off as I was leaving school. I used to help my dad out in his restaurant um, on the weekends. And um, as I left school, there was a lot of pressure on me. Um, in an Indian family, there's always pressure on one of the, the, the kids to, to take on the family business. And um, with my brother and my sister both being very good academically, there was pressure on me to join the family business as I left school. So I joined at 16 years old and I remember walking into the kitchen and um, thinking I was going to be a, a top quality chef. And I think my dad realized that this boy needs grounded. So the first thing he done was said, you're going to be washing dishes. <laughs> and he made me wash them for six months. And after about six months, I remember saying to him, was it okay if I learned to cook now? And he said, see, just for asking me, you're going to do it for another six months. So that was my grounding. I started off right at the very base level of understanding how a restaurant works. Mm. And, um, you know, I progressed on from there, became an executive chef. I had ambitions to, to go on and get a Michelin star, but I was also very ambitious to, to create something much bigger. I was always looking at a way of scaling the business. And originally I stepped into trying to create systems that would allow me to scale an Indian food brand. And I worked on it for years, but I just couldn't build up enough momentum with it. And I was fighting against just about everybody in the industry about everything that they know and understand about Indian food. And I was going head on with them and saying, no, let's change it. Let's put systemization and let's put machines in. Let's do let's do X, Y, and Z just to try and run the system uh, without the need of skilled chefs. And I actually was successful in creating that. But by the time I was, I was ready to go, I was um, up against um, some really big players within the Indian food sector. And I just didn't want to be second or third best. I just thought to myself, where can I move my skills and, and you know, sort of get into a place in the market where I could become number one? Mm. And I was thinking about number one on a global scale. I was never thinking about number one just in my local town or within the local area. Um, it was just very, very ambitious from a young age. 
I remember coming home one day after a really, really difficult shift and saying to my partner, Laura, that if I make one more chicken tikka masala, I think I'm going to jump off a bridge. And she started laughing and saying, <laughs> saying well, you know, you're in Indian food, that's all everybody knows. And I was saying to her at the time, we were working 100-hour weeks. I was in the restaurant from 7 o'clock in the morning, and I was working sometimes until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and probably most days, just because we couldn't afford to, to keep on extra staff all the extra hours, so we would muck in and do all the prep ourselves and do all the cleaning at the end of the night ourselves. And it had been about three years, so it was really starting to take its toll on us and having no day offs and just continuously working like that. And then obviously the other part of it is that I didn't feel like my skills were being appreciated because I'm going in early and I'm making all this amazing food, you know, really exotic vegetables and creating all these recipes and people are coming in and just saying, yeah, you know, 50% of your customers are just ordering chicken tikka masala. So sat and spoke to Laura that night and I said, what about burgers and pizza? And we both agreed that there, was, there wasn't there was a lot of um, opportunity left in that sector of the market. Yeah. And I said for a joke, I said, what about kebabs? And um, she started laughing. She goes, you can forget your Michelin star if that's what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she actually went away um, and we forgot about it for a little while. And I was sitting watching TV and she came back and she showed me her phone and she said, look at these kebabs in Berlin. This is what we've got to go and find out what this is. And I, I looked at it and I knew straight away that there was something unique about it. The bread looked totally different than anything I'd seen before. The meat was really thin cuts of meat. And then when I started reading about it, I found out that it was really, really high quality. And um, that set us off on a journey where actually we we closed our restaurant for the first time in three years. It was our first day off. We flew directly to Berlin and done nothing but eat kebabs and drink beer for three days. (laughs) And, you know, it was the eureka moment. I think we just immediately ignited a passion and that said that this is the product that we need to take back to the UK. Yeah. And then, so how did that kind of idea go from, you know, your experience within Germany to now launching the Donnerschack brand? There was a, a period of, between myself, Lauren, and, and a few other close friends and, and colleagues, where we started looking at how are we going to introduce this product into the UK market? The UK market for kebabs is completely and utterly unique to the rest of the world. Right. In Europe, kebabs are, are an everyday product. They are much, much more popular than the the big fast food brands. Um, and I think there's a statistic that says that um, in Germany, kebabs outsell the top five fast food, food brands combined by five to one. Wow. That statistic just gets better and better as you keep going. And it's just an unbelievable amount of popularity in, in uh, Europe. And we wanted to try and bring that kind of popularity back to the UK. So we were thinking, well, if we just open a takeaway slash delivery store and we put on these really good quality meats and these really good quality breads and we have to sell the product at a higher price than our competitors because of all these extra um, things that we're putting into the business, then how is the customer going to be able to differentiate us from our competition? They're just going to look at us as being one of the expensive collab shops on the high street. And what we said is that we needed to challenge every single thing that people knew about kebabs yeah from the way the restaurant looked to the style of service to the products that were um, available alongside the kebabs and we actually invented as our first business model we invented donor house and donor house was the idea behind it was it was a full service restaurant we had lots of german beers we had a big cocktail menu 
and it was about uh, an overall experience coming in and kebabs were part of that overall experience. And it started to challenge the way that people thought about the kebab as a product that you could have at any time through the day rather than just something you have after a drunken night out. Mm. So it was it was really important for us to start getting that roll, uh, ball rolling through the, the industry and getting people to understand that it was something different. And I remember the first six months in Donner House was really, really tough. We just couldn't get any momentum because we didn't have any marketing budget. We opened the the business with the last um, pennies in our bank and it was um, a real struggle. I was in the kitchen, Laura was front of house and we worked hard to make sure that that business was um, going to survive. And after about six months, I remember seeing the reviews coming through and I think we had about 200 reviews and the majority of them were five star. and had very few complaints and, you know, just overall trying to provide a good service to the customers and I think we started recognising that. Yeah, And we got to the stage where um, the customers started coming in and saying, oh, yeah, my friend recommended it or someone else told me about it and I thought I'd give it a try. And our sales were going from, you know, at that point about £12,000 per week. And all of a sudden we're hitting mid-20s and 30s and mid-30s and an incredible rise of just popularity of the product and the business over a period of about 12 months. And this was back in 2017. So we were started looking at the the business model and thinking well this is actually started really working and you know we we're getting people coming in at 12 o'clock and eating these kebabs and they're absolutely loving it how do we take this out into the wider market because our franchisees aren't going to spend 1.2 to 1.5 million pound fitting out a 150 cover restaurant and we had to um take all the inner workings that we had learned from Donner House and we started working on the concept of Donner Shack and the idea was that we were going to grow Donner Shack and we were going to um, franchise the business model. Looking at it in hindsight, we had no idea what kind of level of um, uptake that that, the, that business is going to get. But mm. in 2019, we launched our first Donner Shack in Leeds. Um, it was the first restaurant that we'd done at arm's length. I remember being there for the opening and about three or four days in, I was looking at the staff and had enough confidence to say, I think these guys know what they're doing. And... Um, that was it. That was the start of start of the journey. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really fascinating because, I mean, within my lifetime, you know, as you said, that the kebab as a product has been known as this, in the UK, late night kind of greasy treat. And it's only within the last few years where franchises such as yourselves have been completely redefining that and repositioning it. But uh, as you mentioned that, I mean, you only launched in 2019 and yet I read that you've already kind of got plans in place. You're looking at the US as your next expansion market going overseas now. Um, how have you managed to reach the point of international growth so rapidly, particularly during you know, the last few years have been especially hard for brands like yourselves within the F&B space with the, the pandemic and all, all the uh, challenges that that brought. How have you managed to reach that level of momentum, do you think? Um, there was a, a period during the beginning of the first lockdown where everybody was in a little bit of shock. Like, are we actually going to shut down the economy for two weeks? <laughs> and, yeah. and I said, in two weeks, I think we would all be laughing. But yeah. I, during that, that two weeks, I remember thinking like, we have got to try and utilize this time to get our brand ready for franchising. And I remember starting the the operations manual alongside Laura. And the operations manual now is over a thousand pages long. Wow. And I, I remember just starting the first couple of pages of that and it just started growing. And as that lockdown extended, it actually gave me and my team, I mean, we went into um, 
the lockdown with four people in our head office. We came out of the the last lockdown with 11 people in our head office. So we decided that during that period, we would invest loads of our time that we had, and we had an abundance of it, where we're not concentrating on operations and recruitment and all these other things. What we could do was just concentrate on developing the franchise model. Mm. And we really went to town with it from an operational point of view and from um, just understanding what was going to have to be in place for us to grow rapidly. A lot of businesses do it the other way around. We've been receiving franchise inquiries from 2018. Some of them were from international markets. People had seen our brand and they were interested in it. And, and I think people were getting confused. Sometimes they would ask about Donner House being a franchise and sometimes Donner Shack. We didn't even have a franchise perspective. We were just saying to people that, you know, there might be something coming in the future, but we'll keep your details. And then through that period, we started realizing, well, these franchise inquiries are, are getting more and more regular. We haven't even got a system in place to deal with them, apart from sending a, a you know a sort of ad hoc email back to the person who's inquiring. And um, we made a decision at that point that what we weren't going to do was just sell a franchise to anybody who's waving money at our face. Right. And it happens so often in the franchise industry, and I see it regularly where brands that are up and coming, they have a, a huge amount of interest and they start selling franchises. And we just decided we weren't going to be in that selling franchises business. We were going to award franchises to the right partners. We were really, really careful to make sure that we were talking to the right people and spending our time with people that could grow our business significantly. So generally from the offset, we had such a confidence in our business model, our financial model, and the operational model above all else, which is what we'd invested all that time in, that when we went to market and we started actually speaking to some serious franchisees, we didn't have to do any selling. We didn't even have a, we still didn't have a prospectus. In fact, we still don't have a prospectus and yet we sold out over a hundred units in the UK. And what I think was really interesting about that was during them conversations and we're talking to these experienced franchisors, uh, franchisees, sorry, who have multiple um, stores with other brands and um, big networks and lots of resources and especially main thing being lots of capital. The one thing that they recognize in our business above other businesses that were competing for the, the same franchisees was our operational model was really, really well thought out. It was so well thought out that they could see themselves growing this business without all the typical pains you would get when you're growing a new brand. And these brands that I was talking about that sometimes they go to market too quick, they then work out all them operational problems as they're growing and they have the resources and the funds to do so. But usually it comes at the franchisees expense and then they say well okay look well we've changed the system so we're going to have to put this new equipment and we're going to change this but if a franchisee's already got 50 stores he's already looking at how much is this going to cost me to to refit all these stores and retrain all my staff and so we didn't want to do that and um now what we have is we have um we we genuinely think it's the best kebab operating system in the world we've introduced all sorts of tech we've got robotics um in our our kebab cutters, they actually cut the kebab automatically. Um, we have lots of really interesting parts to our operation that made our franchisees look at it in a slightly different way than they would normally look at a young up-and-coming business. Yeah. And in fact, some of our franchisees even said that you look like a business that has 200 units already, and yet you've got two. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, sometimes a, a little bit strange for them, but 
Um, they certainly bought into it very, very quickly. And what was originally a 45-store deal has grown and grown and grown. And it's um, sitting at 100 stores um, plus um, deposits taken for sites in the US and Florida and Texas. Right. Okay. And um, I mean, kind of the flip side to that, it's it's amazing that, you know, franchisees are coming to you and saying that your operational systems are well beyond what you'd expect from a, such an emerging brand. But the flip side of that, how are you choosing who to partner with when you're growing at such a rapid pace? What kind of experience or traits or just what do you look for with these franchise partners? There's a term that I've heard over the last few years in the franchising industry again and again, and it's uh, the mumble, um, the multi-unit, multi-brand operators. That was something that intrigued me because what it was was people that had established networks that were being restricted in how big they could grow their existing networks. Maybe they partnered up with a brand that's already sold out all the areas that they wanted to develop in. So they're then looking outside of the box and saying, well, we need to um, partner up with another brand that can create the same um, returns as the businesses that we have or better. Um, and it's in a, a sector that aligns with what we've already got. Um, so sometimes we have people coming from pizza brands, sometimes from coffee brands, and there's synergies there because they use the same operations managers and the same sort of recruitment techniques, et cetera, et cetera. And they were very, very interested in, in what we had to offer. Mm. Um, so rather than us going and really like saying that this is exactly who we're looking for, and amongst all of them franchise inquiries, we sort of picked out the ones that we thought, hang on, this is this has got potential to to grow with this partner and you know we could potentially do more than three to five stores which is a sort of typical sale that you would be expecting for a small business and and that certainly that that strategy proved uh, um, very well for us and it's um meaning that we have two partners that are taking on over 100 stores in the uk yeah, that sounds great. I mean, that that kind of idea of um, mumbos is something that we did cover, I think, last year as part of our multi-unit month campaign. And it seems like it's just a, a growing trend because brands like yourselves are recognising, you know, that they're not only established operators, they themselves want to broaden their portfolios with, you know, these exceptional new um, new concepts. So um, just uh, going back to the kind of American expansion you're going for at the moment, Sanj, um, I was just curious because the, you know, as we've mentioned, kebabs are, they're well known in the UK, they're very well known across Europe but what's the general perception of kebabs in the states in your opinion like is that do you see this being a product that will be just as popular or is there going to be some kind of education needed to kind of you know inform consumers about um what is a what is a kebab and how appealing of a product it can be yeah so it's uh, the first the consultants that we spoke to out in America said um people here don't know what a kebab is right. how are you going to introduce this product to the US and yeah. you know when when the hamburger is there absolute go-to product how are you going to compete with something else um that isn't a hamburger and um i remember talking to my team and talking to the marketing team and said look we have to approach this in a completely different way we can't go there to america telling people that we are bringing a european product to you or a mediterranean product or a turkish product or a german product whichever way you want to term it they don't want to know and it was actually one of the consultants said to me that if something happens in the rest of the world, people in America generally don't care. But if something happens in America, the whole world talks about it. And that attitude uh, in America was what led to us creating a campaign that said, we are going to make the kebab an American product with Americanisms and relate it back to all the things that Americans love. And it's just a 
hot shaved meat sandwich now. <laughs> it's not a kebab anymore. So we've got to think about the terminology that we're using. We've got to think about how we're going to communicate with the market. And we've certainly got to add a lot of Americanisms to our brand. Mm. Um, it's a completely different strategy to the strategy that we have in the UK. In the UK, it's about challenging the status quo about how people already perceive kebabs. In America, it's all about introducing another hot meat sandwich to the market and having something that will um, attract the audience. Um, and it's going to take time. But um, this is why we wanted to partner with franchisees that have the resources, especially financially, to be able to see that growth through. Because sometimes like when you bring American brands over to the UK, they take off quite slowly. And I remember a, a famous pizza brand um, in, in south side of Glasgow and speaking to the franchisee. And I remember him saying to me, you know, we're taking two and a half thousand pound a week. We're not even breaking even. And there was only two people in the shop. Three years later, they were advertising on TV, on the radio, and the store was taking 28, 29,000 pound a week. And they had 27 delivery drivers on a Saturday night. Wow. And that didn't happen overnight. It happened through um, persistency. It happened through um, the, the marketing efforts. It happened through lots of different things that made that product as popular as it is now. And we've got to go into America thinking it's going to be the same approach. It's going to take us a few years to really get to that point where Americans adopt it as one of their own products and they, they start to have it every day. So we're, we're prepared for that. And that's, um, you know, if we're going in with that um, mindset and that strategy, if it does accelerate, then uh, we're ready for it as well. And if, it, if it's a slow burner, then we're ready for that. But it's an exciting prospect to think about how Americans could adopt uh, a new product like this, uh, like the kebab, uh, into their uh, their markets. And um, certainly the people that we've spoken to are very, very excited about it. Absolutely. No, it certainly sounds like you've done your research. And as you say, if it's a slow process, if it's a fast process, it doesn't matter as long as ultimately, you know, the, the results are there. Um, kind of just looking at your journey as a whole so far, Sanj, what would you say has been your proudest moment in growing Donna Shack to the, you know, the state it's in now where you're looking at penetrating arguably the home of franchising as a market? The proudest moment has to be signing that first franchise agreement. Right. Uh, and it was, you know, the first franchise agreement, I always thought in my head, and I've been thinking about it for years, and I always thought in my head that it was going to be a one-store deal. You know, I'm a mom and pop, some family that's, you know, borrowing to the max to open the first door and just believing in what we had. And, you know, in my head, that's the way I built it up. What I wasn't expecting was it was going to be a 45-store deal um, within the M25 um, that would cover the whole of London. So I'm signing this deal, and I, I just remember having this flashback of almost 12 years ago where my first business failed, and um, that failure led to my house being repossessed, my car being repossessed. I was homeless, and I was actually living on the site of a, a restaurant that was in the middle of a development. And... Um, a couple of days before I managed to open that restaurant, I had £3.29 in my pocket. So to go from that to signing a 45-store deal was, I think, the ultimate feel-good moment. Mm. You could write a book about it. You could, write, uh, you could do a, a, a story on it and the excitement on my face that day. I think uh, I don't think I, I touched the ground for about three or four days after that. <laughs> I can imagine. So it was, um, yeah, it was an exciting moment. And for someone, um, a franchisee who has a, 
a very private background, has uh, loads of investments, has got significant funds to grow businesses, has been offered just about every master franchise from America to bring into the UK. And for him to stay away from all of them and say to his bank managers, to say to his team that we're investing in Donorshack and I really believe in this brand and this is the one that we're going to grow. It was, it was you know, you couldn't write it. That moment is just, um, it's hard to put into words. It really is. Yeah, no, that's a phenomenal endorsement for your brand. And I can certainly imagine it would be just a living a dream really um my my final question for you sand is just uh, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur who's perhaps looking to follow in your footsteps looking to launch their own business either has experience like yourself or maybe is coming into this for the first time um what would you what would you say to to somebody (laughs) don't do it it's it's not an easy business to be in but it is very rewarding when you get it right um, I think the the main thing that I would say and the main point I'd, I'd get across is make sure that when you're signing franchisees that you are doing your homework and you're making sure that your operation is tight, that your financial model is secure. There's some people who might not be as lucky as me and the first franchisee might be somebody who has to go out and borrow money. And you know, I was in that position myself when I hit rock bottom, I lost my business. And what you don't want to do is take a punt on somebody coming in and trying to grow your brand and things don't work out, make sure you prove your business model. Go and open up restaurants, go and operate them, get into the kitchen and do the dirty work, do the clean down at the end of the night, write notes about how that clean down was and make sure that when your staff are doing it, that they're not suffering like the way that you did. So put in systems in place that would make it easier for them. You know, things, small things like making sure that you can do a shutdown in 30 minutes as opposed to an hour and a half. Mm. That's the kind of things that motivate our team and say, you know, I actually don't mind working for this company because I get to go home at a reasonable time and get the last bus and so on and so on. These are the small little things that, you know, when you're working in a restaurant and you're grafting in it every single day, these are the small things that matter. And when you've done that for years like we did, then when it comes to actually developing your business, you're thinking about all of these things. You're not just ignoring them and saying, "Well, oh, you're you're employed, and you if you don't miss your if you don't get your bus at nighttime, that's your own problem. You can get a taxi." You know, that's the kind of things that end up leading to having an unmotivated team, people who don't really want to be there, high turnover, low retention rates. You're constantly training. Then you're getting inconsistent products. Franchisee doesn't really understand why it's like that. They just think that's the restaurant industry. But what you've got to do is you've got to go above and beyond you've got to make sure that your your business model is really well thought out that your finances stack up and um that you've done the work yourself because people will respect you in a different way absolutely no i think that's you know something of a masterclass you've just kind of delivered there on on um redefining what it means to be a restaurant operator well thank you once again for joining us sand it's been really interesting catching up with you and uh, yeah really excited to see what's next from you guys over the rest of this year and beyond it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me on It was fascinating to hear about Sanj's journey from working in his family's business to signing a huge development deal with Donashak and the many highs and lows that came in between. His trajectory as a franchisor is the perfect example of why you shouldn't give up and that even during the hardest of times, you can learn invaluable lessons to create a brighter future. It was also really interesting to hear about his plans for American expansion, especially considering that the Humble Kebab is a product pretty much unknown within the States. 
By the sounds of it though, Sanj has done all of the research he'd need to ensure that this launch is just as successful as at home here in the UK. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think is the most challenging part about introducing a new brand into an international market? Make sure to let us know. If you like the podcast, subscribe and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Or even better, leave a review or a simple rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. To keep up to date with franchise news and have it put into context by the global franchise experts, subscribe to the magazine, hit us up at globalfranchisemagazine.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn today.